Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Okay, what, six days into this uh, new normal, and here we are with another episode of The Mockingcast. This is also like a Mockingcast new era. We're weekly. Like, this is, a, this, is a, this is a thing now. This is like well, our third week in a row we're recording. It's amazing. It's so exciting. It is exciting. Gosh. That's what I, that's what I was trying to herald, but tell... <laughs> What uh just took a pandemic for us to go weekly, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone was like the literally the only good news I've had all week is that the mocking cast is going weekly. And I thought, Aww. you know what? Woo! That was like a little uh, hug on the heart. Giddy up. Yeah. How's it uh so what are you guys up to? How's this what how are you surviving? I feel like I said this last week because I feel like I'm just saying it on like on repeat right now. The Lord never put it as like a calling on my heart to be a stay-at-home mom, you know? And I didn't, I wasn't raised by a stay-at-home mom. And so like, I don't even really have like a blueprint for how this works except to like over-function. So yeah, so I'm over-functioning like, like, a beast right now, which is got to stop at some point. Um, How's the patio furniture? Is it just? Oh my amazing? god! So update. Um, <laughs> See, we can do this now weekly. Like, I need to know about your so, plantings yeah. and so your here, furniture. Here's what happened today. Like, literally two hours ago, um, my husband was on a meeting. The kids were in front of the TV, and I was like, "Here's my chance to get that antique wicker chair down from the top, like the where the top balcony." To, to the grass to spray paint it. Okay. So um, I couldn't fit it through doorways and it's disgusting. It's been up there for years and like never been cleaned. So I can't get through doorways. So I was like, I'm going to like lower it and use like the rail as a pulley system because I've seen enough PBS kids to know mm. how that works. Engineering. <laughs> yes. And I could not find a rope. So I used one of the dog um, uh, leashes that locks you know? Yes. And it, and I got the chair down beautifully. And then I tried to do the footstool and it like, I, I mean, it's an old dog leash and not well-made. So it like released and I got a wicked rope burn on my finger. (laughs) And Josh was just like, we don't need to go to the ER right now. Yeah. You really don't. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the last we ever heard of Sarah Condon. (laughs) Literally, that's my update. I am looking at ordering things uh, for the porch uh, today. So, well, I mean, you know, it's like very exciting stuff. One of my most faithful Christian friends was like, "We don't need to be ordering things right now as Christians. We need to, you know, not consume." And I'm like, "Uh huh, uh huh," like searching like (laughs) porch furniture. What? I actually did have a couple people ask me, like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea painting your porch furniture. I've been meaning to do that. So Sarah, any other pro tips besides pulleys using pulleys? You don't have to I just want to say you don't have to clean anything before you spray paint it. Just it'll just it'll just land under the paint and it'll be fine. That's my other Sarah, the idea for you with rope just makes me nervous. I'm really worried you're gonna accidentally hang yourself. Like you know, just I was in a meeting and I came home, the kids were watching TV and 
happened? How did she use a dog leash? We don't know. <laughs> Suicide jokes are fun. Yeah, RJ, how they, are you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so I was making fun of you for doing yard work, but then um, I may or may not have done some significant raking yesterday. I've been mm-hmm. weed pulling. I'm like, wow, yeah, my yard is going to look really, really good because what else am I supposed to do? So uh, we're doing good. I was a little worried last night because around... I don't know, four or five o'clock, I just did not feel good. And I was coughing and I was dizzy. I had a headache. So my wife um, promptly quarantined me. I binge watched uh, Barry Great until show. about 11 p.m. But I feel fine today. So praise God. Good. Do not have a fever. Good. So um, anyway, so, so I mean, just, it's one of those things where I probably just had like a little frog in the throat, a little cold. But of course, now it's like fearing the worst. Well, you know, um, but, our, our dear friend and Mockingbird contributor, Charlotte Getz, did test positive for the corona virus. And um, she's uh, she's doing well. She's posting some videos on her own social media. So people should check that out. And she'll be doing one of the video devotionals that Mockingbird's been doing. She'll be doing one of those. But um, I'm still yeah. so unclear what the symptoms actually are. Scary. So I'm she, actually... She said her symptoms have been fairly mild, but um, that doesn't mean everyone's are. And she's she is a she is a um, uh, I think she deals with lupus, so she's easily contracts these things. It's it's really tough. But I'm here to tell you that she has it, but she's at least from what I heard this morning, she's doing okay. Um, And uh, oh, I should mention before we jump into the stuff, if anyone out there is you know churches whatnot looking to do podcasts during this, we have the. The, the, the best podcast engineer in the business is ready to help you out. His name is TJ Hester, and he works with us. And uh, as long as you don't schedule him for when we need to do our recording, uh, then we will. Um, we were happy to share the wealth. And you That's can just like get telling in touch someone with us. you have a great babysitter, which is always dangerous. <laughs> I, you never tell someone when you've got a great babysitter because so, they're well, gonna, I, they'll I, steal I, them from well, you. Well, I said so. we would. Uh, we could possibly edit this out. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been burned on the babysitter thing many times. We've, mm-hmm. we've, we've almost stopped giving out babysitter. I never give out babysitting advice. That's right. Well, Names. let's begin by talking about something a little bit uh, more prosaic. Uh, welcome to marriage during coronavirus. And this also just applies to relationships more generally. By Jennifer Senior in the New York Times. This appeared early last week, and I wrote for it about it uh, for our website this morning. She says, perhaps a week ago, I wandered downstairs, laptop in hand, to show my husband an extremely dire Twitter thread from an Italian doctor. He took one look, gave me an exfoliating stare, and handed the computer back to me. The thread was 20 parts long. Why, he asked, are you showing me this? It wasn't because he'd been in denial all week, sticking his fingers in his ears. It was because this man who's had more chaos in his life than I have and who's contended with far more loss, was calmer in the face of adversity than I was. I was starting to wear him out, and I hadn't realized it. She goes on to say, the coronavirus may turn out to be the ultimate stress test for couples. Partners, even those in long-term relationships, have very different coping styles when it comes to uncertainty. So Jennifer Seniors uh, called Esther Perel. I love how if you work for the New York Times, I guess you can just have Esther on speed dial. (laughs) The noted therapist and host of the podcast, Where Should We Begin? She describes several stylistic differences that might be relevant right now. Among them, how partners approach information in moments of crisis. One may binge, the other has a defined sense of when enough is enough and turns off the tube. How consumed partners become by an emergency. One may be preoccupied with risk, the other may focus more on maintaining the rhythms of normal life. 
how partners move through the world when disaster strikes. One takes a structured, purposeful, proactive approach. The other is more passive and fatalistic. If you polarize and you think there's only one way to do things, she said, it's fake certainty. The whole point is that you're discovering it along the way. Which means that when couples clash over strategies and coping styles, it's important to remember that both parties, within reason, of course, are right or potentially right. Now, one thing I said about it this morning is a more sort of low anthropology way to phrase that last sentiment would be that when it comes to how you're handling current events, both of you are probably going about it wrong. Um, and that that's not, in fact, the end of the world. Now, I've seen this uh, everywhere I look. Um, it almost is like, even if you are you kind of enter into a relationship, both dealing with crises sort of the same way, you, over time, you start to fill these roles where the one of you is a worrier and the other one is the rock, or one of you um, is a catastrophizer and the other one just buries your head in the sand. Um, and uh, it's very easy to start to think that one is the right way to, to be and one is the wrong way to be. And of course, that just adds uh, supreme marital discord and judgment on top of the the already strained circumstances, instead of viewing it perhaps as though, you know, uh, you need each other, that God has kind of put you together for better or worse, and that uh, it's, it's not actually bad to have different responses to these things. And in fact, the way, the way that we insist that there's one right way to respond is actually a way to, to control a chaotic situation uh, that ends up backfiring. Are you guys seeing this in relationships? Uh, people falling into these roles and uh, uh, mythologies almost like, well, well, she's the worry wart and I'm the, the practical one. I'm the saver. It's, she's the spender. That sort of thing. You know, yeah. I'm the introvert. She's the extrovert. I'm the, yeah, all over the place. But Sarah, what do you think? Um, I mean, we're definitely falling into the, some of those roles just in our own household. And I think sometimes, I mean, I think this is not like the thing we say in 2020, um, and it doesn't apply to everyone, obviously, but, um, it's definitely, there's definitely some genderedness to it for us. Um, and I, and I know that doesn't function for every couple, but, um, I am like much more worried about like, what are the kids thinking? How are the kids functioning? Blah, 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 blah. And Josh is like worried about like his work, you know? Um, and when I'm out in the neighborhood and have talked to neighbors and thank God we're in a, thank God we're in a neighborhood with neighbors. If you don't know your neighbors and you don't love your neighbors, this is a great time to get to know them, to stand six feet away from them and yell, but it's a great, it's so reassuring. Um, but the, you know, I see a lot of them kind of, especially with husbands. I mean, we're in Texas with husbands who are in oil and there's some mm. wives in oil. That's a, that, I mean, that th I kind of feel like that's their realm in which they're falling apart. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but Dave, I love what you're saying that like, we have to think of this in terms of like, no one's really getting it right. Like no one's going to respond to this well. It's just like having a tremendous amount of grace and an endless amount of apologies to offer one another when we lose our shit, to be frank, which is kind of a daily occurrence, you know? Um, yeah, I just think this is unassailably true on every level. And it's true in when I'm doing marital counseling, premarital counseling in my own relationship, you know, uh, at some point I finally... Uh, learned that to tell my wife to relax under any circumstances is the absolute worst thing I could ever possibly do. 
Um, and, and then, you know, there are other things that, that I think she has said to me in the past that she just, you know, maybe, you know, you take things too personally. It's like, well, yeah, is that true? Yeah, it probably is. But saying that, um, isn't helpful in the midst of the situation. And this is going to go to, I think another article we're going to talk about today, but at the end of the day, just kind of keeping your mouth shut and listening, um, is always helpful. And then also, if you are the one who is ranting or who is um, feeling conflicted, not to necessarily expect an immediate response from your partner, that there needs to be, um, and I think we've gotten better at this, you know, recognizing, okay, when do you need my help versus when do you need me to just listen to you? You know, or, or when do I need to rant at you or do I actually need to ask you to, to, to you know, aid me with something and to sort of um, find those moments. But it, it is interesting because that all this forced, this social distancing slash forced intimacy mm. is really going to uh, force people into reckoning with, with each other. And I got at this a little bit, I guess a couple weeks ago when I talked about sort of submitting to another person's understanding of the world. Um, and I think that's true just to recognize that your spouse, your children, your whoever you are around right now and intimate with is just a different person than you and is telling themselves different stories. That's also something that happens. That some, we, we act out of these narratives that we hold on to that we aren't even really aware of until mm -hmm. someone doesn't act in accordance with those narratives. Right. Um, and so try to, to try to make, to try to reveal the hidden because yeah. if I can understand the narrative my wife is working out of and she can understand my narrative, then we can have some more compassion for one another and understanding towards each other. But um, it's going to be a very interesting time for marriages and yeah. for parenting well, and she, for all of the, Yeah. She cites the, the Hurricane Hugo and kind of uh, um, that happened in the... 90s in South Carolina and the the ways that there was a lot of emotional movement after a disaster like this. That means some people had children, some people mm -hmm. uh, got divorced. Y'all stay on your birth control. Lots of people. For all the hard stuff, let's be honest. <laughs> let's, lots of people, uh, you know, got married out of this mm -hmm. and lots of relationships mm -hmm. reformed and there's a lot of emotional movement. And you're right, it, it is hard not to see it. When I was writing the piece, I was like, it does most of the relationships I see around me do sort of break down along gender lines where the wife is generally more worried about health stuff. Um, and maybe that's men just never going to the, don't like to go to the doctor. But I, I, I do see the reverse sometimes too. And I see sure. sometimes it, there's the guys very worried about money in a way that the wife isn't, or very worried about social standing in a way. It, 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 people worry about different things, for, but I, I do see what she's talking about is once you get into the weeds of, like, basically, you uh, need to be more like me. And that could be, that could actually take any kind of form, not just mm -hmm. sort of gender role type forms. You get into a situation of uh, cage, cage-like mentality and judgment that invariably makes whatever this high stress that's causing you to say that, it very makes the stress worse. Um, and I, yeah, but the, I, I bring in my father's talk about mythology and marriage, and we've talked about that already on the podcast before. But it's the everyone ultimately is after the same thing, which is which is love and protection mm -hmm. and these things, and we're do, going about it in different ways. But to somehow get underneath it is to maybe stop just trying to control one another in the midst of an uncontrollable situation. And if I can pass on just 
one thing that our marriage therapist said to us, which was so helpful, is is to remember that in the midst of these stressful situations, and let's face it, all of life is stressful. Um, this is a particularly stressful moment, but there are always problems, there are always concerns, there are always challenges. The thing is to, at all costs, maintain the bond with your spouse, to not allow whatever problem you're facing to become something that comes between you, but that you see each other as a unified front who are trying to address that problem together. And if you can do that, if you can kind of, um, you know, not make your partner, your spouse, the locus of the problem, but see the problem outside of your relationship and something that you can approach together, um, that's just, and you know, I'm not always successful at that, but I think to the degree that we can begin to approach that, it's going to be, um, it'll make for a lot more harmonious, you know, and fulfilling relationships. Hmm. I did see a tweet yesterday. Is like, you know, I, being quarantined right now makes me so grateful that there's someone that I know I could have been quarantined with that I know <laughs> that I'm not quarantined with <laughs> and how amazing it is that we broke up or something like that. And it, so hopeful. It does strike. I mean, we're talking here first about people who are in a relationship, and I know not everyone is. Uh, and now we're going to talk about people who are quarantined with kids, and I know not everyone's in that situation. And part of the issue here is, although we are in this together, um, and this this the coronavirus is this faceless enemy essentially that is um, uh, doesn't care about you know gender, doesn't care about race, doesn't care about economic bracket. Um, the same time, people's experience because of those sort of things is going to be quite different. I think I read today that I think it, it manifests itself worse in men than it does in women, but uh, like physically. Uh, but you also see like my the, talking to people who are quarantined without children is it just they're having a completely different experience of this right now. And so I don't really know what to, to acknowledge that, but if I want to acknowledge that up front and also say that. Um, we're going to get to stuff later that's more universal because this next piece is from Kimberly Harrington in The Cut, which she says, now is the perfect time to lower the parenting bar. Now, it's also about anyone who has to work from home. She says, I know what it's like to try to figure out your universe from scratch. And here's another thing I know. You can do this. You just aren't going to do it well. <laughs> But that's okay. None of us are. We're in the middle of a global pandemic with a global workforce with kids who've been raised to communicate with their friends via 15-second videos posted on global platforms. This isn't a situation that lends itself to instantaneous platinum-level little house on the prairie -ing. This is the perfect time, though, to finally recognize how much you've been trained to perform parenting. To design a cozy little reading nook so your Instagram followers can see and grudgingly approve. To bake your vegan muffins and take a photo. Or pack your kids' bento boxes and take a photo. Or set out art supplies in a scattered but not too scattered way, if you catch my drift. And then definitely take a photo. Give it all up. It's time to take this parade float and strip it down to four wheels, a floor, and a functioning steering wheel. It's time mm -hmm. to be basic. Look, we all know what's up. We all know work is going to suffer and parenting is going to suffer and we are going to suffer too. There is no award ceremony at the end of this. Unlike the running joke that every working parent, single parent, or stay-at-home parent has uttered at some point that everyone was alive at the end of the day, that is actually the real job we all have now trying to keep people alive, even people we don't know and can't see, 
at the end of the day, every day, until this thing is done. I got a lot of comfort yesterday uh, when I was talking to one of our neighbors. She, um, Melissa has a very different life than I have. She's got four kids, first of all. Um, I think she was an elementary school teacher for a while, but she's, for a long time, as long as I've known her, has stayed home with the kids. They tend to be more conservative than we are, all those things. And we're different in a lot of ways. And I'm I've always been thankful for that because she gives me such a different perspective on things and one that I've always found to be really interesting and faithful. And I'm just, I've always been thankful for her. But I was really thankful for her yesterday. Sorry. Because she said to me, Sarah, all these working moms and parents are getting this homeschooling thing wrong. She's like, you don't homeschool for eight hours a day. You make sure that your kids know how to read. If they're like able, if they're old enough to read, they need to read and they need to like be doing some math every day. And that's it. That's it. The rest of it is like they're playing, they're outside. They're like, they're going to be on the TV some, they're going to be on their iPad some. But it was such a word of grace spoken over me because I have really felt the burden of responsibility. And I I feel like I just need to say, like, I have a small group um, uh, that I meet with of girls from our church. And like, women are bearing the responsibility of educating children right now. And they have full-time jobs. And I'm not talking about my ministry job, which obviously is kind of like light right now. I'm talking about girls I know who are like big boss ladies in oil companies who are also worried about educating three children right now. And that is crazy. Um, So I, I just, I wanted to share that because I think this article really speaks to the idea that we can't come at this like, we can't optimize this, Dave, to use like a seculosity word. And we're all going to want to because we're all going to want to control this. Mm. But the more that we can remind ourselves of what childhoods were like in the 70s mm-hmm. and that those people turned out fine. I mean, I think about, you know, there was that funny Speak piece that circulated over the years about, you know, basically how moms would like lock kids outside the house, you know, with some tang. <laughs> Good luck. And powdered, like, powdered, just yes. Just because you'd use the hose, you know what I mean? And like, I think that I also want to say, I feel lucky to have kids right now, which I, I, I know that sounds weird, but I actually wonder how hard this must be for people who it's just a single person or it's just two people at home that I constantly have these sources of kind of slightly oblivious joy. I mean, that's kind of a gift right now. Um, it's not an easy gift. I definitely have said the F word around them today. I mean, the rope burn alone. Um, <laughs> but like, I just, I, 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 we're always talking about how we want to spend more time with our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we are. Like, what is that going to look like? How can we make that? How can we not try to make that an Instagram moment? How, how can we actually like enjoy it? I don't know. Yeah, Dave, you you said this article is not terribly universal, but I think it actually is because it's not really about lowering the bar on parenting. It's about lowering the bar on everything, mm-hmm. right? As she kind of says, um, at work, uh, definitely lowering the bar on our money management because who knows what's going on, man? I mean, mm-hmm. just don't don't even look at the stock market. Don't mm-hmm. if you if you're blessed enough to have a retirement account, like don't even take a look because it's 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 crazy and wacky and um you know all this talk right now about 
a bailout, a government bailout. And like, let's face it, we all need a bailout on every level. And that's always true, but it only becomes apparent when we come to the end of ourselves. And that's where we are right now. Like it's finally okay to say, hey, I'm just living one day at a time and not Mm. to sound like a disorganized loser. Right. You know, not, not to be like anxious about not having a plan because nobody has a plan. You know, right. Mike Tyson, everyone had a pl- has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and we've all been punched in the mouth and there's something freeing about it. And so I just say to everyone who's listening, lower the bar on everything. And I want to say specifically to pastors right now, because oh, if you've been on it? social media, man, and I'm feeling this pressure, mm. you know, I was not feeling good last night. Girl, I'm married on, to that pressure. I I got on Facebook and I was like, everybody on earth is posting, you know, video Bible studies. Oh my gosh. And, um, and I did one yesterday sort of (laughs) right before I, well, yeah, right before I crashed and, and I tried to do it five or six times and one, twice my video shut down. One time I thought it did, but it didn't. One time my, my son interrupted. And finally I was like, that's it. It's going to have to be good enough. Like here, like send it away. And it was, it was beautiful. Well, I, it was, it was, nah, let's lower the bar a little bit. It was okay. (laughs) It was passable, you know? And that's okay, right? And and I know that pastors are feeling the pressure not just to be good pastors, but also now to be social media mavens and to, oh to, to take advantage of this opportunity we've yes. been given to connect with people in a new way. And like, oh my gosh, we're we're going to be so burned out next week or like two weeks from now. Yeah. Um, and so I just encourage everyone to lower the bar, to remember we have been bailed out, we will be bailed out. Um, I'm preaching to myself right now. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but man, what a crazy moment for for everyone. I keep thinking about something Sarah said last week when you were like, we've got to stop thinking about, you know, oh my gosh, people are going to forget the church exists and start thinking about what would Jesus, you know, how where, where is he in the midst of all this? Because there is such deep fears. Oh my gosh, we didn't get any offerings in. We don't, you know, people are going to forget about church and, you know, they're going to see, or something like that, that panic, that fear. And I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But it also, you know, I realized at the beginning of the cast, I never really said how I was doing. And one of the things I feel vaguely, um, you know, scared like everyone, kind of relieved of, of certain things that, you know, that schedules clearing and all that stuff. But I also feel this kind of low-level guilt. I mean, I'm, I'm starting mm. to know the, the virus has entered into our town and we're starting to know people who have it. And that's, that is scary, but I'm feeling a low-level guilt at a sense of satisfaction that I feel like the ministry I've been given or we've been given over the years is kind of made for times like these. Mm. All we ever talk about is how people don't really have much control in life. All we ever talk, we, we do this through the internet and we talk about God uh, being not just a person, not just the force that helps us sort of, you know, uh, you know, shape our environment or build this a, a sort of a horizontal project, but we talk about God being who you need to save you from death. I'm like, it's so crazy to me you said that, Dave, because that was exactly what I was going to say. Like yesterday, I was doing something in my kitchen, and I was like, holy shit. Like if there were ever a time that people should give up on all their like personal betterment projects— Mm-hmm. both secular and religious, and just head long into a theology of grace. 
this is that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the time when people, when this is going to, this just speaks to me so deeply. Like, I am a little bit like, I feel you, and that I am a little bit like, how's all that, like, visioning going for you? Or even, like, from the religious side, I'm like, how's all that, like, you know? Well, I do want to say I'm very envious of the people who've planted community gardens at their churches. Mm. Good job. That was now smart. You, yeah. <laughs> but, like, how's all this co-creation going? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, how's that feeling right now? Probably not real good. And, like, I don't I'm, I, I don't mean to, to be snide about it. And I know I sound snide, and I know I am, and I need forgiveness for that. But, like— like, you know, I, I, and I'm struggling with some of the resources I'm seeing. I mean, I saw a, a prayer that went out that somebody wrote for coronavirus and got shared all over the place. First of all, it didn't have the name Jesus in it. And second of all, it was like, God, billions of galaxies. Okay, look, listen to me for a second, preachers, as long as we're talking to preachers. Your people do not need you to get on every day at noon and freaking do noonday prayer, which is not a thing they know, and then get off, okay? They need, if you want to do noonday prayer because it makes your little heart feel better and we're liturgical Christians and everything, that's fine. I grew up basically in a Baptist Episcopal church, so I struggle with that, but whatever. What your people need, if you're going to get online, is for you to get online and say, how are y'all? Are y'all okay? I love y'all. God loves y'all. We're going to get through this. They need you to be vulnerable. So like, if you're going to do anything, like this is, I don't know. I just, I just, I feel like I, sorry, I turned this into my own platform, but it's, it's just, we need grace right now. We need humility right now. We need vulnerability right now. I'm not sure we need 800 videos of noonday prayer. Well, before we move on to the next, let me just, it's, it's amazing that this article by The Cut ends with the word. You guys know how it ended? Uh-uh. Godspeed. Godspeed. Oh. An article in The Cut ended with Godspeed. Praise God for that. Moving hey. along, Dave Zoll. Well, okay. this is, uh, CJ wrote about this yesterday. Uh, it's an article in The New Republic written by Nick Martin called Against Productivity in a Pandemic. And this is sort of just echoing yes. stuff we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. But everyone needs to hear this. Uh, she's, you know, because we, you were all going to, as, as he writes, you'll bump up against some unwelcome reminder that in the face of historic disruption and uncertainty, you can actually get a lot done in home mm-hmm. isolation. Did you know Shakespeare wrote King Lear while he was quarantined during the plague? That that little chestnut has been trotted out quite a bit. Have you tried baking as a form of corona therapy? How about turning your living room into a home gym using soup cans for hand weights? Inbox. Want 19 easy tips on how to manage anxiety in the time of COVID-19? This mindset is the natural endpoint of America's hustle culture, what, we've, what we term really the cult of productivity or seculosity. Uh, the idea that every nanosecond of our lives must be commodified and pointed toward profit and self-improvement. In a literal pandemic, as millions of us are trying to practice home isolation while also attending to the needs of our families and communities, the obscenity of pretending that work and, quote, the self are the only things that matter or even exist becomes harder to ignore. This sort of, yes, the pandemic is bad, but how can you improve yourself with all this solitude? Or more to the point, how can you continue to prove your worth as a hard worker? These are obscene ideas, is what he's saying. More work, maybe the single most constant feature of American adulthood, is not the answer. Neither is more needless productivity. This is a time to sustain 
The work of care, of real meaning, is what we should be concerning ourselves with now. It is not optimized or disrupting or any of that. It is just essential. Reaching out to offer support to the soon-to-be-overworked nurses in our communities, contributing to local funds and efforts to feed and adequately compensate grocery workers, restaurant workers, and others who are working at great risk and may be struggling to put food on their own table. We should be offering to make shopping runs for our elders or other at-risk neighbors. This is the essential work that demands our attention now. Um, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I think he's basically locating the way that the this, this pandemic is unmasking all sorts of seculosity around uh, getting things done and mm-hmm. um, the need to get stuff done that you, just for the sake of getting things done and not even asking what do you need to get done. I, I think I think it was Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who's it's quite a character, was was talking to someone on NPR yesterday and saying like, let's just forget about the economy right now. Let's just make sure that we're there's people alive in order to have an economy. You know, <laughs> like that, that's that's what's important right now. And this is all we're having to answer all the questions of uh, of 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 death. I mean, uh, for years, people have said that the entitlement under which most of us live has um, has a bit to do with the fact that we've never faced a real war, a wartime yeah. effort. And yeah. this might be that equivalent. Uh, it, or it, it's different, of course, in, in key ways, but it, it's also similar in a lot of ways. And uh, Un, you know, w- what is necessary versus what is a luxury? What is recreational complaining versus what is truly important in the cry of the human heart? And where where is my time best used when when things are at risk? All these questions. Again, I think it's actually a in the, in insofar as it unmasks and exposes some of our needless neurotic uh, seculosity we're going to see that it's a, it's going to be a bit of a gift. That doesn't mean as a, a, we're calling pestilence a good thing. Well, Dave, I totally agree. But I also want to name, you know, Sarah, for you uh, specifically, that, you know, if, if being productive is something that, um, and doing things is something that brings you peace. Like, you know, some people, uh, they have peace by spending time alone or solitude, binge watching TV, whatever. But if doing things being productive is something that just makes you happy, then that's okay, you know, but also to recognize it doesn't make you better or worse than anyone else. It doesn't justify your existence. It's just how you're made. You know, I also think we're going to find, even with all the time that we have, you know, we've talked about how one of the byproducts of our tremendous um, interconnectivity is this need to really maximize our time, maximize our day. And and then we're going to find a way to do that again, right? I'm already feeling the pressure of how do I best balance like being a good pastor, getting the work done that I need to get done, spending good time, good quality time with my kids. And to just on that front, like even as we're asking ourselves, what is the most important thing to do right now and to let other things go, still to give ourselves some freedom. There can be a tyranny even in that, right? Um, To, to, yes, to, to, Put our focus on the important things, but also to lower the bar, to let ourselves off the hook, to you know allow ourselves a little room for freedom and joy in the midst of these difficult times. Um, so you know, I don't know what balancing all of that looks like, but man, I just hope uh, that we don't find another way to um, gobble up all of the free time we finally we finally find ourselves with. Although I'm sure we will. 
I mean, I feel like so. I already have, honestly. Yeah. Like, I, like, looked up. I mean, you, I said, like, I looked up and realized, like, we had to record today. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, when am I going to get this done? And when am I going to get that done? And, you know, it's like – and I'm like, this is crazy because <laughs> we have so much time. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's – And uh, there's nothing to get done, actually. And there's actually nothing that has to be done. It's such a yeah. weird feel. But I think – it's going to take a few weeks of kind of like resetting our brains, mm-hmm. right? To to kind of really actually, it's kind of, this is a tear. I, I, I want to acknowledge how many people have lost their jobs and that that is horrible. And I want to acknowledge how privileged I am. But I, in light of that, have to say, you know, when I go on vacation, I have to be on vacation for a week before I feel like I'm on vacation. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. it's going to take some time of us doing and doing and doing before well for people like me who have a bent towards anxiety and overproduction to then be like okay but there's not really that much left to do right and like and like it's okay to like slow down and now what (laughs) i mean this morning i was i came downstairs i mean i really like i have a schedule up in our house like i am an elementary school teacher yeah, RJ shaking his no, his head no. We're, no, I we're do. Trying, we have a, we're trying to do. We that. have a reward system. Our kids get um, three checks every day if they're good for different things, and then they get a dollar. That's not even true. Like, that is and, not even true. Yeah, and then if they're really good, they get a sticker and an extra dollar. First day, both of them got dollars. Second day, both of them got two dollars. First day, right? They're killing it. Second day, Annie got two dollars. Third day, nobody got any dollars. <laughs> I was going to say, gosh, I feel bad for Neil in this situation. I mean, it quickly, yeah, you should. It quickly wheels went off the wagon. Um, but like this morning, I was like, okay, I've got to get up. I've got to fix him something healthy for breakfast. And Neil has, you know, his medication he needs and we got to have enough food. And I was like, okay, how much have you eaten? He's like, well, I ate a whole bowl of goldfish crackers and a granola bar. And I was like, we're good. I'm not going to make you breakfast. And then I looked at Annie and I was like, what do you want for breakfast? You want cookies? And she's like, yeah, cookies sound good. So I put three cookies on a plate and a banana. And I was like, eat the banana. Like, and I felt better. Like, I felt better. And so I try, I've tried to think about how that made me feel better, that it was like, it's okay, like, it's okay, you know, that we're not, I think the word for me right now is just optimizing. I have to not optimize every moment, mm. you know? Um, it's hard. So. It's hard. It's it deeply hard. ingrained. Because it's just me and my weird-ass brain well, over here. And before I, get too, before, I get, before I get too judgy on you, Sarah, because I'm getting super judgy, um, I got to re- remind myself that we've been living apart for two months. You know, I took mm. this job in Florida, and Jamie's been in Texas, and she's already had to just, like, lower the bar and kind of settle for what she could get done because right. she's been kind of single parenting. I mean, my mom has been in town, which has been amazing, but there have been weeks that she was single parenting, running a business, like doing all this sort of stuff. And, and, um, but you know, she just lowered the bar <laughs> and got it done. Right. And so maybe we were sort of maybe prepared for this moment a little bit better mm. or well, she was anyway. This is, uh, I, everyone is trying to sort of, uh, tell each other how, 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 how the best way to do it, give them lots of life hacks during a quarantine. And I, I, I sometimes, some of that I see as beautiful and people reaching out to one another, but then there's also, I, I, I was someone on Twitter yesterday saying, can we all just make a pact to just stop this entire platform is just becoming nothing but advice, nothing but advice, sort of unsolicited advice. And I thought, um, even though we've been talking about parenting advice, you know, relational advice this week, but here's something to ground us with Tim Kreider coming in from, uh, you know, our 
our friend Tim Kreider, who patron saint, patron saint, writing a, uh, a screed against advice. This is what he says: A couple friends of mine used to set up a free advice table on weekends on the street in Brooklyn, just like the one in Peanuts. They only ever actually gave advice to in response to relatively trivial questions, like should I go home and do some chores or go get drunk with my friends. Uh, for more serious ones, they did something more like counseling, drawing the advisee out with questions to help them think through uh, the problem themselves. They learned that people are actually asking for a lot of different things when they ask for advice, few of which are actually advice. They're asking for permission, reassurance, commiseration, or sympathy. They want to waive their own agency, outsource blame for their mistakes, to be told they're in the right, that their situation does indeed suck, to know they're not crazy, that they're not alone. Most of them simply needed to feel heard. A lot of people, it seems, don't have anyone in their lives who listens to them. Meta-analyses of different therapeutic methods suggest that the part that actually helps is the clients becoming attached to someone who pays attention and cares about them. Few of us, now here's where he gets into sort of, I just he just goes subterranean in a beautiful way. He says, few of us, not even the savviest and most self-aware, are really privy to our own motives. So to purport mm. to understand what other people want or to tell them what they should do, especially in the most irrational realms of love, sex, and reproduction, can only ever be an exercise in projection. Think of the romantic advice we give our friends. We want them to have partners who are safe, who will never hurt them, who will unconditionally adore them, even though we would never choose such boring partners for ourselves. (laughs) We want someone thrilling, out of our league, someone we have to win. I just want you to be happy, we tell them, even though our own actions suggest that happiness is pretty low in the hierarchy of things we want. When you see a friend settle contentedly into a life that appears from the outside to be miserable, you can be certain he has found something he needs far more than happiness. One of my friends who manned the free advice booth, who's now a social worker, says that he thinks the fallacy behind most advice is the same basic delusion underlying most Western philosophy, governance, and economics, that people are essentially rational and will act in their own self-interest. He sees most systems of thought as reducible to, my plan would work perfectly if only people were different. But people are not different and never will be. They do what they want not what they should or what's wise or rational or virtuous. He sort of gives a rejoinder at the end. He says, I do think other people's words can accidentally resonate with questions they have long, that have long preoccupied us, spring latent tensions or suddenly reveal decisions already made. But I think people often feel as if, unless they have some concrete advice to offer in a crisis, that they're showing up empty-handed. But just showing up is the hardest and best thing you can do for someone who's suffering. Boom! So all... All I can think about as related to um, all of my clergy colleagues in the Episcopal tradition doing morning, evening, uh, morning, new day and evening prayer um, is that when I was in seminary, we had morning prayer and it was required for Episcopal students every morning. It was either seven or seven thirty. I don't remember because I didn't go. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, And I got out of it because I went to the dean. I lived an hour and a half away um, and I went to the dean and I said, look, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to show up for morning prayer every morning. Um, I just like won't stay married. <laughs> so that's your call. If you want me to stay married, then I'm not showing up for morning prayer. But I'm just going to. Yeah, because it would mean me like never seeing Josh and I would have had to sleep over and blah, blah, blah. No, no, not, not the fact that you had that impulse. The fact that you actually said that to 
uh, well, to you know, do I'll your say anything dean. to anyone. Apparently, it's a part of yeah, my charism. Amazing. Um, amazing. And so I. Uh, so I became this person that never went to morning prayer. And I noticed, and this was so fascinating to me, because it, we weren't a huge, you know, what there's, I don't know, maybe 30 of us at most that would have to show up for this. So it was noticeable I wasn't there. And when my classmates did not want to go to morning prayer, they would come to me and be like, oh, I really don't want to go to morning prayer tomorrow. And I would be like, Oh, you should explore that feeling because they knew that I would tell them or just like let them share their feelings that like they didn't have to go to morning prayer. Like I love this idea that most of the time people are looking like for listening or permission or whatever because it took it really took like a week or two and I realized like people who never talked to me would come over to me and be like, I really don't want to go to morning prayer tomorrow. It's a lot of morning prayer. Every morning is morning prayer. And I was like, girl, I'm not going. Sure. Yeah, so <laughs> he, says, just... he says earlier in the piece, he says, I've noticed people unerringly <laughs> seek advice from the person likeliest to give them the advice they want to hear. Exactly. No one, I love this. No one who really wants to go home ever asks me whether they should have another beer. <laughs> yes. I love it. It's so good. Uh, RJ? I'm not going to say anything because it's just so it's just so good. It's so true. Mm-hmm. He's if there if there's someone that I could have a drink with, actually, spend spend an hour with, I, I just think he'd be fascinating. You know, well, it's, um, it's, I couldn't hang with him at all. No, but. well, clearly, <clears throat> clearly, uh, the, his when his friend says that most Western philosophy, governance, and economics boils down to this, to this is sort of my plan would work perfectly if only people were different. And, cl- oh different. and clearly, there there are certain forms of Christianity that Welcome that's that that's true too. Yeah. Right? This yeah. church would be perfect if people really if it weren't for all the people. people. Just showed right. up, you know. <laughs> like remember remember what Jerry Seinfeld says when Elaine says, "We what is the deal with people?" And he says. They're the worst. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's I, I love that. And um It is the great miracle to me of Christianity that the church has survived for two thousand years despite people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but see, well, maybe this is also you know, it, it's a time to lower our Lower the bar. Lower the bar on our expectations of other people. Like, just keep on lowering the bar. Because the amazing thing, and and Dave, I don't know if I'll get posted, but the little thing that I wrote for um, the blog, which, again, I haven't done forever because now I have, like, a little bit of time. We're getting a lot of Um, submissions. (laughs) I'm sure you are. I'm sure it'll, it'll be up in a month. But all these, we said this before, all these sitcoms we love about these communities of people who are all totally impossible and can't stand each other mm-hmm. and yet have these most amazing relationships and are utterly devoted to each other. And that's what we want because mm-hmm. those are the TV shows we're obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And yet we can't bring ourselves to actually engage in it. We can only do it vicariously because it's too scary because it is scary, mm-hmm. right? People are the worst. They're also the best. They're also right. the and best. You gotta, and you got to, right. you know, and you got to have both. But that's, it's what makes life interesting. Oh people gosh. are interesting, man. Well, remember, remember, he says, people do what they want. And the, 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 it's, the, it's the emotions, it's the, the heart. What, what, what do we always say? You know, it's the great mantra. What the heart, yeah, what the heart desires. Uh, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Yeah, it's, mm. it's how, it's how yeah. people work. And if, 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 if you can't get that around your head, you're just not going to love them or you're, you're going to hate them. But, but yeah. because it's ultimately yeah. how you work and how I work too, because we, we, we yes. can talk to her blue in the face about sort of why we shouldn't give advice. And then, then uh, you know, we're there, uh, you know, d- doing it uh, to 
I'm dying to do it right now. Yeah. RJ, I, I want to straighten you out. I've been meaning to straighten you out about a few things. And maybe well, today sure is the Jamie time would to love do that. that. So, Morning yes, prayer is canceled across the United States. <laughs> Sarah, you, I t- talk to your people in real ways. Sarah, if I had said that to my dean, I probably would have gotten kicked out of seminary. You know so God, God bless you. You know, you know what? I've been kicked yeah. out of a lot of things. It is not that Well, it, it is you kind of delightful <laughs> to see all of these sort of, uh, you know, Pseudo Catholics have their, they're all doing Protestant services nonstop. Oh and, my gosh. And I, so I kind of like, as, as I, I kind of, I'm, aff- I'm affirming of that. People who've never actually even done. No, it's good. Prayer. It's really good. I have to say, <laughs> this is it's great. Forever. It's great. This is, this is great. It's such a non sequitur, but um, one, it's totally non sequitur. So I'm sure TJ can get this. But one thing we've realized in living in close proximity is that we get to know each other so much better. And the other night we were watching an episode of something with kids who ended up in detention. And my husband looked at me and he goes, did you ever have to go to detention? <laughs> I was like, hold on. Did you just, like, I spent half a high school in detention. I used to roll in and they'd hand me a screwdriver. And You're I'd pretty much to, Ali Sheedy. I'd have to flip chairs over and scrape the gum off of them with a screwdriver. I mean, that was... Anyway, we're all getting to know each other better. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I think that that's... I could see that happening now. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to the very final piece uh, that we to talk about, and it's from Jason Michelli, our friend mm, and the Methodist yeah. pastor, who, who writes on a more serious note. He says, I won't be doing any celebrations of life after this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now I know uh, provocative title. This is Jason, after all. Uh, but he's he's he's. It's a short blog post about the story of uh, Lazarus, and he talks about. He says the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John begins with a diagnosis of the human condition and of the disposition of God's heart towards humanity, even in this horrific illness we bear. John tells us that Lazarus is sick, and John tells us that Jesus loves Lazarus. It's important, especially during this pandemic, that we know both of those things, that we are sick with death, and God loves us even in our illness. Lazarus, you see, has contracted the same disease that infects every man, woman, and child. He is infected with death. And just as in Genesis, we who are dying, separated from the God who made us from nothing for love alone, are given a promise. This sickness of Lazarus's is not fatal it will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. That's the promise preachers of the gospel likely will need to proclaim in great numbers. That's the promise to which we will commend those taken by COVID-19, earth to earth and ashes to ashes. That's the promise that will make such rites not just a remembrance of life, but a celebration of life to come. That's the promise that will make the preacher's words not a eulogy, but a proclamation. The promise that this sickness called death is not final. Notice, we are told by John not only that God is sad, we are told that he is deeply troubled. We are told that God is angry, but not at Lazarus, not at you or me, not even at the president. His anger, John says, is directed at God's enemy, whom St. Paul calls the last enemy, death. And that is a very good thing to remember at a time like this, a time that pretends to lead to many future days when families will contact pastors and priests and say, despite their grief, uh, mistakenly think they're supposed to organize a happy, joyful celebration of life for their dearly departed. Mm. 
It's good to remember that Jesus is weeping and is angry that any ever need to journey to the grave. It's good to remember that God in Jesus Christ promises the coming of a day, a final day, when there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more grief, no more death. I mean, it's amazing he's a Methodist. <laughs> Just kidding. I had to say it. Sorry. It's such, But it is a really good word. I mean, there are like... We love you, Jason. Liter- <laughs> we love you, Jason. There are literally uh, like coffins stacked up in churches in Italy right now. I mean, like that's the... I mean, that's the really... I mean, the conversation we're having at home right now is we're supposed to go on sabbatical this summer and um, we're probably not. And um, part of that is because we're just anticipating funerals because of this. Mm. And that's mm. really, you know, I mean, it's, it is. And I, I love what he says that this is, um, it's weird how when certain people die in certain ways, especially when I hate when people say to their loved ones, like you should throw a party. I think that's the worst. I really do. Sorry for anybody who like has done that or thinks it's a good idea, but that's not what people need. They don't need a party, right? Mm -hmm. They need to grieve. They need a Mm. sad place. Um, Certainly they can like toast you later, but like they need that moment of an encounter also with, with, the love of a God that will not let them go. And, th- and that's, you know, that's what the church gives. That is like one of our, f- our, our few gifts we have left to give that people really need, and they really need this now. Um, and I think, you know, when people die of something as catastrophic as this pandemic, I, I just think the only, the only thing we should all head towards is, is grief and grace, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I think this is such a powerful piece. Yeah, I've done, um, as I've said before, quite a few funerals, and I've had a few families tell me that they, you know, really wanted the service to be a celebration of life, and I just kind of like nodded and smiled, knowing that that's not what I was going to do. Right? <laughs> you know that we we do we do funerals, um, we don't do uh, celebrations of life really in the in the Episcopal Church, at least you know not according to the the prayer book. Um, and yet, this article is is helpful because. Um, you know, first of all, there, there's a place for remembrance, right? That it is important, I think, to remember, to remember the um, the love that you shared with someone, uh, the times that you had, uh, the things that you did. Remembrance is important, and it's just, it's part of, of life. Memory is a huge part of, of life. Um, but then there's mourning, and there's uh, hearing the promises of, of God to us in the midst of our mourning. Um, and that the celebrating we do Sarah, as you said, and as Jason says, it's it's celebrating the next life. It's celebrating eternal life. It's celebrating mm-hmm. the fact that that what we believe is um, this life is um, you know it's not the end. It is just the very very beginning of a life that's going to go on and on and on for eternity and just get better and better. And that we will see those we love again face to face when we see Jesus face to face. And that is just so tremendously hopeful um, because life, um, I don't want to minimize things, but I do think, you know, we're all going to get together in heaven and this earthly life will have, will, will seem very short, I got to think, right? Very short, very quickly. And it's, um, that's not, not to minimize the pain we go through in the morning, um, but we do have something so much bigger that we're looking forward to in such a profound hope, um, which is, I, I just have to say this too, is a new hope, you know, right? That Sarah, I, I preached a sermon at your church six months ago where I, I talked about concepts of heaven before Jesus, mm. you know, and talked about how like in Jesus' time, 
uh, Jewish heaven, if you read about it, like Sheol, it's, it's not a place you want to go. And uh, pagan heaven, uh, Elysium, is not a place you can get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the heaven that Jesus talks about is a place you want to go and a place you can get in mm-hmm. because of what he has done. Um, and that is a, that's a new idea in the history of the world and something that, as are so many Christian ideas that now we just take for granted, mm-hmm. um, but how profoundly hopeful that is. I keep thinking about what these funerals will look like. And I keep thinking about when we lost Josh's dad. Um, I guess we're coming up. It'll be two years in May. And our family circumstances were such that we were not told when he died. We don't exactly know how he died um, and that their parish priest um, sort of begged to call us and tell us, um, which was such a mercy two days later. And so there wasn't really a funeral we could go to or, I mean, it was complicated. And so like, I don't know, gosh, it was several months later, the bishop, our bishop offered to do a funeral for us. And, um, I mean, my father-in-law was a big, and he's an Irish drinker type, right? He's kind of a partier. And I think what he really wanted was uh, for everybody to go to a bar and raise a glass. And that's absolutely the last thing we wanted to do. What I didn't realize was how much we were going to need a funeral. Because frankly, I was kind of done with the situation. (laughs) And then, you know, the bishop opened up a prayer book and did a small funeral. It was a very small funeral service. There was no body there, right? Um, No physical body, no ashes. And, um, and it was exactly what we needed. So my hope and my prayer is that the church is able to provide that for people in the, in the months to come. Mm. One of the things that's going on behind the scenes right now is my father's writing what he considers to be his last book called A Mockingbird Handbook for Boomers, Finding Peace and Hope, <laughs> Finding Peace and Hope in the Last Third of Life. But it's all about death. And um, I, I'm excited to, I can't wait to read it, frankly, because who knows what goes on in that brain of his. But it's, uh, I think that this question of how do we die well um, is something that we, as people who claim to, you know, believe that God is a God of death and resurrection, need to think very seriously about. And um, a lot of the, the ethical questions sort of seem to lose their immediacy in the midst of this kind of uh, you know the urgency of of people dying and tragedy, and I hope I hope it's not visited upon you, uh, our listeners, um, or me, because mm. uh, it could be. And yet uh, we're we, you know we are not without hope, and I, I keep thinking about I, I keep thinking about Christians, you know, hanging out in inner cities, you know, in the Roman Empire, taking care of those who are uh, who are dying of plague because because they had hope in the resurrection that was why they were they were there not because they believed it necessarily in the dignity of every human being although they did that as well but they also felt like you know it was a win-win they could serve their neighbor Mm -hmm. and they could go be with uh you know their lord Mm. so um i don't know any any other closing thoughts rj any any last things to say no, it's great to be with you guys uh, weekly and to walk through this with you. Um, I don't know. I'm going to throw a curveball. I, I would love to hear any thoughts that our listeners have. If we're going uh, weekly, you know, would would love to hear any um, feedback you guys have. And we're just we're excited to be um, coming to you more regularly. And it's just a privilege. It's a privilege that anyone's listening. And I love spending time with you guys. So I'm always. Uh, 
encouraged and, and edified. And um, mm. anyway, yeah, it's good. It's fun. All right, my friends, uh, stay out of harm's way. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what the crate sign-off is. Just barely. I'm not any promises. Yeah. Just barely. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye, you guys. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.